Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Robert Brooks. He's Professor of Evolution at the University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia. He studies the evolution of mate choice, the costs of being attractive, sexual conflict, the reason animals age, and the links between sex, diet, obesity, and death. And today we're going to talk about his new book, Artificial Intimacy, Virtual Friends, Digital Lovers, and Algorithmic Matchmakers. So, Dr. Brooks, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to everyone. Thank you so much for having me on. I've been looking forward to doing the show with you for, for quite a few months now. So I'm, I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, likewise. So let me first ask you, as an evolutionary biologist, why is it that you decided to write a book on new sex technology? That's a great question. I, I um, For a long time, I've been writing a book that I thought was going to be sort of the book, you know, the big book on, um, on why sex is so complicated and sexual conflict in particular. Um, and I'm, I, I struggled with it because it's such an enormous topic and it impacts so many different areas of our lives. And I realized that I actually needed to have a different focus than just, you know, hammering away at, at why sex causes so much, you know, angst between individuals and so much complication in relationships, but also so much sort of ideological heat within societies. Um, and then I realized in the process of doing that, I started reading up about, um, about sex robots and virtual reality sex. And I thought, you know, this is actually the new arena for all of these old issues, the issues that societies have sort of fought about uh, within themselves for uh, millennia, for as, certainly as long as we've got recorded history. Um, and I thought, well, this is a great opportunity because we can actually do something about thinking about change that's coming upon us ahead of time. And maybe we can avoid making all of the mistakes, um, sort of the culture warring mistakes. I don't think we will, but you know, hopefully some people uh, m might be able to avoid making some of the old mistakes and falling into the old traps um, if we learn how to navigate, you know, the issues of how these new technologies are going to impact us um, and how we're going to build them. So uh, that that was, and so, so then I had I had a real project on my hands because I could talk, I could, you know, get into something beyond the the conflicts between individual, you know, organic animals, which I've been studying for a very long time um, and had this whole new world uh, open up to me and luckily at the time I, I led a program called Grand Challenges at our university where we spent two years looking at you know at a different theme and we had been doing inequality and climate change and and I insisted we do living with 21st century technology because I think that's going to have a huge effect on people and um, so I met all these amazing people at our university and then people we brought in from outside who were roboticists and AI specialists and etc. Um, and so this whole, you know, it was, a, it was a great sort of period of renewal for me to be able to look into those subjects. Sure. But I mean, coming from an evolutionary biology standpoint, what do you think are perhaps what people need to know about the evolution of sex differences, mating preferences, mating strategies? that are relevant to understand how technology uh, is impacting or will impact human relationships? That's a great question. Um, you know, for somebody who studies sex differences a lot, I don't actually get that far into the traditional sex differences kind of um, debates and discussions because what I found um, was that even more fascinating than the sort of sexy tech um, from uh, as, as I as I started to uncover what was going on, um, there are technologies that really tap into our social dimensions that um, are, I wouldn't say completely independent of sex differences, but they're, they're far more varied than, you know, men and women and their strategies on heterosexual mating markets. Now, there's a heap of that. There's a lot of stuff, particularly in the, the sort of last third of the book or so, about, you know, male-female, hetero interactions, market-based dynamics, etc. Um, but the really cool thing is that 
uh, we, we're starting to get this understanding that the formative thing in human evolution, and I don't, I don't normally trust it when people say this is the most important thing that ever happened, but one of the candidates for the most important thing that ever happened in human evolution is what um, Yuval Noah Harari calls the cognitive revolution, and um, Joe Henrik calls the secret of our success, and Bill von Hippel calls the social leap. And so, you know, why use one of those names? I call it the taming of humanity. And that's really, I'm, I'm copying the people who, who talk about um, human domestication, self-domestication. So what made us these incredibly flexible apes that can, um, you know, make their way into just about any habitat in the world, above water habitat in the world, um, and some below water, is the capacity to cooperate. And that capacity to cooperate is both um, you know, a, a, a um, cooperation over things like farming and food production and um, the economy, etc., um, and defense and warfare. But as well as that, it's the cooperation and, and fundamentally the cooperation to raise children because children, human children, are these enormous sort of sponges for human capital investment really and so investing in that human capital is expensive and you know mums put a lot in fathers put a lot in um, grandparents as we know put a lot in and also unrelated members that village that we say it takes to, to um, raise a child is part of this enormous allo parenting effort and so the the social sort of parental effort side of um, evolutionary biology, human behavioral ecology has so much to offer um, in terms of uh, what made us who we are. And that includes our capacity to make friends and then to draw those friends from our outer circles towards our innermost circles, if we're thinking of Robin Dunbar's sort of nested circles, um, and to make them, to bring them close and to, to become intimate with them. Um, we'll probably speak a little bit more about intimacy later on in the program, so I won't jump ahead to that. Um, but that capacity, that general capacity for intimacy and for friendship is so important. And I think that a lot of our social technologies are tapping into that, and they are also changing the way that we do that. And I think that those are just as important as the sexy sex tech. Mm -hmm. So let's get into that bit about intimacy. So what does intimacy mean from the perspective you just exposed them I mean, in from an evolutionary biology perspective? That's a good um, good question. A couple of parts there. So the, the simple definition of intimacy that I'm working with here is intimacy is the integration of another person into your sense of self. Um, so basically, as you become close to somebody, your your sort of mental model of them starts to become an important part of who you are. And psychologists have shown that we build this. We build it by, um, firstly, we, we make friends by grooming, just the way that apes and you know all, all primates groom each other by picking at you know one another's fur, etc. Now that's kind of deeply rude for strangers in human society, but we we groom each other with gossip and um, with chat, and most of that is you know it's news, but it's not of a deeply personal nature. But the more the closer we get to someone, the tighter our alliance with them, the more we um, we exchange important information that we wouldn't share with just anybody. So this escalating self-disclosure, the tendency to share things with one another back and forth that we wouldn't share with just anybody is um, the way in which we build intimacy with another. And that's been really important because, of course, we need allies. We need co-parents. We need people that we can trust. Um, and we build those things algorithmically. Now, many people say, well, there's something that computers will never be able to do, and I'm always on the lookout. That's always a red flag. Computers will never be able to do this. It's like the old arguments, you know, no animal other than humans can do this, and then you'll discover there's an animal that can do it. Um, and, you know, computers can, can mimic the ways in which we make friends, and they can mimic the ways that we become intimate because those are inherently algorithmic processes. They are stepwise, iterative processes. Now, the computers don't completely substitute for a human being, but what they do is they are learning to tap into the ways in which the back and forth ways in which we make friends, draw them near, become intimate, build trust. 
Um, and we've actually known about some of this stuff since the 1960s. Right. So could you explain then what aspects of human psychology exactly do these new technologies explore? And I don't know if you want to give perhaps a few examples of it. Sure. So um, I guess the building of the building of friendship at the moment, we have technologies and it might seem a little bit obvious, but it becomes less obvious the harder you look at it. Um, the building of friendship by iterative um, sort of sharing of gossip and news mm -hmm. is really the business of social media. So if you take a platform like Facebook, platform like Facebook evolves and, and it works the way that it works because it, by trial and error, the engineers behind it have figured out that people love to sh share little bits of gossip with each other, to confirm one another's worldview in um, in exchanging news about the world. Um, and so that has led to the the the, um, the rise of a, um, a very effective, very efficient platform for people to do that thing that they do. Now, what the platform doesn't do very well is distinguish between your best friend and somebody that you used to know 25 years ago when you were in high school, um, because they're all, it's all very flat. These are your 500 or your 500,000 Facebook friends. Um, and, and it's probably, you know, even flatter on platforms like Twitter, for example. But those, those um, platforms have, via a process of deliberate human design, converged on effective ways of keeping people engaged by allowing them to do what people do. Now, we spend about 20% of our time grooming one another, just the same as apes and monkeys do. Maybe a little bit more because we are quite good at getting our food. We don't have that hard constraint that means that we will starve if we spend more than 20% of our time doing it. And already, social medias in the US spend 16% of their waking hours on social media, which means that either there's of their time that was spent, you know, looking after relationships with people in real life, bit of overlap there, but it's not perfect. Um, so, so either that's out the window or other things are out the window like sleep. And we know that that's true for, for young people in particular. A lot of people are losing sleep because of the time that they're spending texting and messaging and liking and commenting and trolling and being trolled and all of those kinds of things. So here we have a process of deliberate design by human engineers, slowly by a matter of sort of A-B testing, figuring out the best way to, to keep people on a platform and sharing news because that's a great way to sell advertising. But along comes the big technology of the 21st century, which is deep machine learning. Piece of, you know, the cornerstone of contemporary artificial intelligence, which as the, um, the science fiction um, writer Ted Chiang was on a panel with me and he was sort of underwhelmed by artificial intelligence because he said, really, it's just advanced applied statistics. And he's right, you know, machine learning is just a particular form of statistics, um, but it's a very efic efficient form of, of statistical model building that allows um, you know, models to improve themselves based on learning from their data. So now that we have lots of data on these social media platforms, it's no longer human engineers that are optimizing the platform, but it is machine learning um, algorithms. Those machine learning algorithms can also couple up with other forms of artificial intelligence like um, uh, natural language recognition and natural language generation to start generating the text. So you see bots on platforms like Twitter. What I expect to see is that actually on those platforms that are being optimized now by machine learning, you will also get other little sort of personae on, um, on, on those platforms, engaging with users as if they were friends themselves. And that leads to the virtual friends, which are one of the three big types of um, artificial intimate technologies, or I call them, just call them artificial intimacies, um, that, that I think will be important in the next few years. So we've gone from algorithmic matchmaker, matching friends together, to something that's becoming an actual virtual friend and starting to occupy the headspace, that, that sense of the other being part of ourselves, that um, other friends would occupy, human friends would occupy. Mm -hmm. 
but from an evolutionary perspective and taking into account how our brain evolved to process, in this case, social information, do you think that if in the extreme people will become, will replace human relationships with this sort of, let's say, virtual friends that they would be losing something in terms of their human experience. I mean, I was just trying to understand this from a simply an information processing point of view in terms of the impact in the brain, etc. Look, I think that that's, um, you know, yes, I think that, the, the, that those technology will at least partially replace human friends. And what I mean by that is not a one-for-one -one substitution. And I don't necessarily mean that we will see them exa as exactly the same as our human friends. Sure. But because we have limited time and we've got limited headspace, you know, uh, the, the number of relationships that we can have, as Robin Dunbar has argued quite compellingly, is limited both by the time that we've got to groom and gossip and by the, the size of our cerebral neocortex. Um, so both that, that hardware constraint and the time constraint mean that whatever time we spend engaging with computers, whether it's playing straight up, you know, a first-person shooter computer game or this more artificial intimate kind of relationship that I'm, I'm foreseeing here, um, it, it substitutes, it starts to squeeze out the normal relationships. So instead of having 10 good friends, you've only really got space in your life for five good friends because, and they've only got space for five of each other. And so what we see is the number of real relationships getting smaller. The other thing is just, just for Facebook, you know, tells me I've got 580 friends and I don't, I couldn't tell you 580 names, um, but I look through them and I know who each of them are. Um, but there, many of them are people that I would have organically forgotten or at least, you know, put into cold storage somewhere in the far outer part of my, my friendship circles. And, and Facebook keeps that alive. And so the time that I spend, you know, noticing their post is time that I don't spend interacting with my good close friend, whether it's somebody that I lives on another continent or whether it's somebody who lives next door to me. It's still squeezing out the time and the headspace. And so in that respect alone, I think an information processing approach is a, is a good one um, the, for you to suggest because um, in, in that respect, people um, are, are going to, you know, are already losing out. They're already losing out. They're losing sleep or they're losing relationships. And most people, I think, are losing a bit of both. Um, and there's plenty that they're gaining too. And that's important to not forget. It's really easy to get stuck into the, the downsides of these tech, um, but there, there is plenty that they're gaining as well. Mm -hmm. So, but when it comes specifically to romantic relationships and love, I mean, I, I don't know if you first want to talk about it from an evolutionary perspective, because I think until now we've been focusing mostly on friendships and human relationships in general. But, uh, mm. I mean, uh, do you want to go first from an evolutionary biology perspective into what love and romantic relationships are and perhaps the aspects that are relevant to understand how then these new pieces of technology exploit these aspects of human psychology? Absolutely. Sure. That's, that's a really good angle to take. So, um, you know... Uh, love is another thing. Once people have sort of heard my argument about intimacy, they go, yes, but romantic love. Romantic love, the machines will never be able to do that. And I, I always go, you know, the machines, when you say the machines are never going to do that, you really mean they're never going to look and, and move and, and behave in an indistinguishable way from humans. And that may be true. I doubt that's true too, but that's far off in the future. Long before we ever get to Westworld or Her or Ex Machina, long before then, the machines will tap into part of our life that is there for romantic love and they will learn, learn to exploit it and use it for, for advertising. So what is love? People ask me this question. They're very disappointed when I give a seminar and they say, but what about love? You obviously are not a, are not a true romantic or anything. I'd say I'm as romantic as the next person. But 
my view of love, because I'm an evolutionary biologist, is very functional. Love, again, is an algorithm. It is an algorithm that is designed to make us do some things that are pretty weird. So we spend most of our time, and especially during this pandemic, we've spent so much of our time avoiding touching, much less you know, swapping bodily fluids with people who are not in our family, even people who are in our family. We don't even touch our own faces. We sanitize all the time. We're really concerned about pathogens. We're really concerned about safety. How do we get from there to having sex with somebody, conceiving and raising a child? Now, we know that your ancestors and my ancestors and every single person watching this, um, this show, ancestors, have, were, were consistently good at finding mates, having sex and reproducing. Why? Because anybody who didn't do that is, cannot be an ancestor, just by definition. Um, and so, you know, we come from this long, long, long line of very successful matings, and that's, you know, commonly known. But how do you get there when in, any, in every generation there are people that never find somebody, never manage to convince them that, you know, having sex at least once would be a good idea, um, you know, never manage to carry that through to conception or, or raise a child. And so what romantic love does is it firstly allows us to get close to each other, close enough to do the sort of very anatomical parts of having sex, as well as all the affectionate parts that reinforce the bond, that reinforce the, the bonding hormones that mean you stick together, and then to continue doing that for a period of time that's long enough to raise a child. And you know, for most of, for most of humanity's history, um, in most societies, most of the time, it's been really good to have two parents. Not everybody's had two parents that are alive, obviously, but it's a real advantage to have two parents. And in fact, many men, you know, that whilst men famously can go off and have lots of children with lots of different women, um, that's not always a very good strategy because your, your children may be vulnerable to just being killed by somebody else um, and you might never find another mate. So it really pays to commit um, under, under many circumstances, it really pays to commit and to be there and to be a good parent. And we are back to that question of investment in human capital. You need romantic love to do that. You know, we all, we've all had housemates. We all know that they go off after a while. Um, and we've all had relationships. And we know that two people who've been really into each other can suddenly not be really into each other. But it's remarkable what the, the various hormones um, and receptors for those hormones are able to achieve in persuading us to do something that in no other sphere of our life would we do. Um, and so you say, well, you know, machines will never be able to do that. You know, maybe, certainly not perfectly. But then again, they already are. There already are people. There are people out there, uh, the idolaters and the um, robosexuals, you can search those terms, are people who love their sex dolls or love their sex robots. Now, you might go, that's not true love because they can't love you back, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and that's true. And yet these people do have very, very strong feelings. Those feelings are very, very real to them. Players of um, computer games like Love Plus, which is you know 10 years old on the Nintendo DS platform, say that this is better than having a relationship. It's less trouble. It's more entertaining etc etc and so they've gamified all of those little hormonal feedback loops and the various um, you know dopamine rushes that you get um, from romance they've gamified that and kept and hooked people onto the games once again squeezing real relationships out of day-to-day -day living right but I mean what do you worry about here when it comes to the impact of information technology in romantic relationships and love? I mean, do you worry mostly about substitute for real romantic lovers, like, for example, sex robots? Or do you think that uh, technologies like dating apps might also have a negative impact? Look, I think that all of the technologies have the potential to have considerable upsides and considerable downsides. Mm -hmm. So uh, to begin with, and, and 
there's no one particular technology that I think is is you know better or worse than any other. Mm -hmm. um, I think that all of this is going to depend on how it unfolds and how it's allowing how how we allow it to unfold. Um, so, in terms of upsides, you know, there's a there's a famous quote the um, psychologist Sherry Turkle at MIT wrote. Uh, famous piece about two or three years ago in the New York Times said there'll never be a, an age of artificial intimacy. Robots might be better than nothing, but they still won't be enough. And the important point that she misses and a lot of people miss is that, um, you know, robots or virtual reality or, you know, just app-based friends might not be the full nourishing meal. They certainly currently aren't and won't be for a very long time. But for a lot of people, the alternative is nothing at all. There's a huge epidemic of loneliness. There's a huge epidemic of sexlessness of people who want to have sexual relationships and who can't. Um, and there's a huge epidemic of, of mental health sort of shortfall of people who can't access the therapy that they need. So there are three very human roles, lover, friend, and therapist that can be filled at least partially by uh, machines and can be improved by technologies like um, machine learning to be better at delivering those things. And so in a world of scarcity, um, who are we to say that we shouldn't develop these technologies and give people access to these technologies if they're done in a humane way and they're done in a, a way that actually um, at least has the interests of the users somewhat at heart and, and the incentive structures preserved in a good way. On the other hand, the downsides, the downsides that I've already spoken about include sort of the, um, the substitution effects that result in the withering away of more nourishing forms of human contact and strong, persistent social bonds. But there are other downsides too. Uh, you know, who owns the virtual friend? Are you confined just like I am with my little brain training app? I refuse to, to subscribe to the pro edition, so I get just enough to make me want to play some more, but I don't really get the full deal because I'm not going to pay for it. So people either have to pay for something on a subscription plan or end up with, you know, with, with not the real deal. That's a kind of a benign downside. And then on the other downsides, if machine learning can learn how to make you feel the happy, beautiful feelings of being in love, which I believe it will be able to do with increasing accuracy and precision and personalization, then who's to say that it can't hold up the other things that happen in relationships? You know, negging, um, uh, diminishing someone's feelings of self-worth and, you know, general, you know, mental abuse, controlling behavior. Why not, why not that, you know? Um, and, and why not uh, scamming people out of their money? We know that people do that Humans do that to each other already, tapping into, faking and mimicking the, the process of falling in love and becoming a friend, etc. So who's to say that machines aren't going to be amazing at doing exactly these same things? So there are downsides all along the path, and there are some considerable upsides as well. Mm -hmm. Do you think that uh, having, <coughs> uh, having access to, for example, online porn, uh, uh, can alter people's mating strategies or any other sort of sex technology? Yes. I mean, I think that the, the simple answer is yes. I think that the more complicated answer is um, we don't really know enough about how yet. Mm -hmm. And I would love to see, I'd love to see the governments, especially the government of Australia where I live, devoting a lot of research dollars to these questions because I'd like to be doing the research and I'd like to be well supported. It's going to take a lot of maturity. Okay, So um, I think pornography is a really good example because there, there is a substitute for sex and people might be up in arms about me saying that. But what I mean is in that same economic sense of substitute, that is the time and the headspace that you spend looking at pornography is time and headspace you are not spending doing other things, including being involved in relationships. Um, and, you know, in the, in the 80s, when, uh, you know, Hustler magazine was at its peak and the VCR was just starting to allow pornographic films to be, you know, viewed in the comfort and privacy of one's own home, there was a huge 
uproar about pornography, a huge moral panic about pornography, particularly in the United States, or at least it's really well documented in the United States. It was Jerry Falwell and the moral majority on the right who were saying that this would ruin families. Um, and then on the left, there were, um, you know, one section of, um, of radical feminism, uh, which, you know, people call them the anti-porn feminists or the sex-negative feminists, etc. But um, people like uh, Catherine McKinnon and Andrea Dworkin, who are saying, you know, this pornography is going to cause this epidemic of violence against women, of sexual assault, um, etc., etc. Um, and, and now and again, they made arguments about it's going to diminish women's capacity to have some, you know, power in, in other areas. But usually they were relating that to violence and sexual assault and, and um, sexual coercion. What do we see? We've been around now for, this is, this is 40 years ago that this happened. The same talking points come out, both from the right and from the left, about pornography. It's obviously got hugely more intense because of internet pornography. Um, and what, what the big meta-analyses show is that even though there are lots and lots of anecdotes of men who watch too much porn being, you know, terrible men um, and, and being sexually coercive and violent, etc., cetera, um, wherever it has been studied at a sort of more macro level, there is either no evidence that sexual assault and sexual coercion have increased um, with with you know, the, the spread of pornography, or there is evidence that they have in fact decreased. So I wouldn't say, you know, porn is a prescription for, um, you know, improving societies, because porn, like everything else, like the kinds of technologies I've spoken about, about artificial intimacy, has some salutary effects, some healthy effects when the right porn's viewed in the right way, et cetera, et cetera, and some considerable negative effects. Um, but it's certainly not the, the cataclysm, the simplistic kind of um, cause and effect type of relationship that was predicted on the left. The right was actually a little bit more correct in that um, they said that it was caused the demise of families. And if you are um, amenable to those arguments, you might see the evidence of, um, you know, changing marriage rates and divorce rates, etc., as being evidence of that. However, I think a more mature analysis of this uh, phenomenon is basically that um, pornography and the spread of pornography is part of a complex of, you know, a move towards a more relaxed attitude towards sex and sexuality that started with, um, you know, access to free and safe abortion and um, contraception, reliable contraception and, you know, gains that women have made in the workplace and a reduction in censorship of, at all levels, etc. And pornography is part of that maturing of society. Um, and all of those things deliver a great deal of good, but in complex, complicated ways. And, I, you know, what I've said in, in this book is that, you know, if you think that, that porn and um, the sexual revolution were upheavals, then wait until the machines start getting involved and have a look at what's going to happen there. Uh, because I think that it's going to make it look like a, a picnic. So about that last point and the sex revolution and the changing sex, gender roles, etc. Do you think that new technology can yet again change those gender roles, how the genders relate to one another, etc., particularly in any sort of negative way? Um, I don't think that, I, I think that um, it would be a very brave person who would say no to that, really, because, um, you know, whenever technology has influenced the lives that people live, the social lives that people live, anything from the ways in which women and men make their livings and individuals generally make their livings through to, you know, the, the, the chances of, con of conceiving from sex. Any technology like that has had enormous effects on societies and on gender roles within those societies. Mm -hmm. Whether it was the the, the plow and intensive uh, agriculture, we've talked about. Um, there's some great examples of, of um, technologies like oil and mining, etc. Um, and and um, you know the contraceptive pill, 
um, internet pornography, all of those things have already had such huge effects. The thing is that we're, you know, we're in the midst of um, huge change that's already detectable. You know, I think that um, that gender, what we mean when we talk about gender roles has gone from, you know, women and men and how they relate to each other in a heterosexual context to being even more complexly wound with questions of gender identity and on top of that sexuality in ways that are really quite fast moving and quite complex um and you know i think i think that anything i say right now will probably be out of date by the time you've edited it and put it online um because there's this this enormous sort of i think freeing up of the constraints um of uh of of gender roles um and of sort of heteronormativity i suppose that is um is resulting in this sort of fluorescence of different expressions of gender and of gender identity um or at least the visibility of it i'm not saying it's necessarily causing it but it's it's um uh certainly becoming a, a hell of a lot more visible what do i mean i guess I know that a lot of your viewers will be very, you know, tuned to the arguments from evolutionary psychology about sex differences. And I've for a long time been very much of the view that, you know, sex differences are highly evolved. They're contingent. They depend on the, the ways in which women and men can relate to each other because of the way the economy works, because of the way that you bring food in, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I, I, I did think that they would always be sort of ever distinguishable in in um in quite crisp ways and I, I always looked with some skepticism at the notion that you know whenever people brought out some obscure society in which there was some some radically different kind of gender order and i'd be like yeah i have to go and read the primary source on that and see if what they're saying is true here nonetheless i am thinking now that with the technologies that that I'm speaking about these technologies of artificial intimacy and just with the radical connectedness that we have um, through just just you know um, the internet and um, sort of private internet based communication I think that the capacity for people to find ever more varied find and identify with ever you know ever more varied forms of expressions of their their own selves and expressions of their own gender might make some of that stuff about sex differences you know um require a certain amount of revision i'm hoping what it'll do is it'll require the the sort of radical social side of things and the very hard um uh selectionist adaptationist views to come together a little bit and work on you know why is this stuff so complicated because it's still so complicated even when you know, we think we know we have intuitions and we, we have very strong intuitions about, you know, how people are and how they behave. I, th I think that the complexity is going to going to get even more extreme. Mm -hmm. So one thing I would like to ask you about is in the book, at a certain point, you talk about, for example, the incel movement in the West and you contrast it with other phenomena like the ones we find in Japanese society, like, for example, the hikikomori. I hope I'm pronouncing the word correctly. I mean, people who simply decide to exclude themselves from all sorts of social relationships and they close themselves off in a room or something like that. And you talk about that, uh, as I said, because they basically uh, these hikikomori do not become in cells. So, I mean, how, how do you look at the sort of uh, role culture might play in how people deal with these new technologies? And, I mean, the kind of reactions they have to that uh, and uh, the, in, the possible social and political impact in different cultures? Big question, lots of moving parts there. So let me see. Um, so the first, um, I might just, do you mind if I just check something up in the book? I just want sure, to- Sure, of course. Right. The incels, for the you know benefits of anyone who, who hasn't heard of incels yet, 
Incel is the portmanteau of involuntary and celibate. So basically, it's people who would like to be in a sexual relationship and aren't and can't uh, for whatever reason. Um, and it's largely been co-opted by men in the West, young men who kind of know that they're unattractive to women. They really want to be sexually active. They want to be heterosexually active in the case of the incel movement. And they're very, very active online. And their online forums, both, you know, um, people sort of go through a journey of, of uh, trying to improve themselves, um, trying to improve their prospects as a mate by, um, you know, potentially working out or working on their their um, game in the pickup artistry sense of the word etc and a lot of a lot of men get very disaffected by that because they realize that that doesn't work um, it doesn't change very much at all and they suspect that they are always going to be like that they're always going to be unattractive to women now of course my advice to anybody would be it gets better you know, when you're an 18, 19 year old young man, you are invisible. Unless you're incredibly accomplished or attractive in some distinctive way, you know, it's not an unusual experience for 18, 19 year old men to be, to feel like they will never um, be able to form a relationship with the kind of person that they want to. Because men's reproductive value sort of goes up, men's attractiveness to women tends to go up somewhat um, throughout the early to middle years of adulthood. Nonetheless, um, you know, it, it, that doesn't help because to be told it'll get better is, you know, people are impatient and they think that they'd very much like to be in a relationship right now. So that's the incels. Um, and the incels have obviously reached some prominence because the online, a lot of their discourse is very violent and often quite misogynistic. They blame women. It's women's problem that they aren't, that the men, the incels aren't having sex because the women have standards that are too high or that they're all sleeping with the very few super attractive dudes, which they call chads. Um, and so, you know, the incels want to become a chad. They think that they're beta and they want to become an alpha. They've, they're sort of distorting this view from um, animal behavior of dominance hierarchies that, that, um, you know, alphas are the top of the dominance hierarchy, like a silverback gorilla, and betas are subdominant, often sub-adult males. Um, now, we know the human dominance hierarchies, we have dominance hierarchies, and that they don't work in quite that way. So the alpha and beta is sort of pseudoscientific stuff. Nonetheless, they want to become alpha, they want to become chads, they want to become attractive. And some of them do, um, and some of them don't, and some of them basically go on violent rampages and have done. Um, you know, through the last um, seven or eight years, there have been a, a large number of them, so much so that the connections are drawn to um, sort of homegrown terrorism in places like the United States, that there is a strong incel dimension and the incel discourse influences other types of terrorism like um, the man who shot up a mosque in New Zealand, a couple of mosques in New Zealand, he was very keyed into the incel discourse and used a lot of those terms, referenced some of their figures. So there's this anger of the young man who has very dire mating prospects. And that's something that we treat as if it's just emerged. Because a lot of it happens on the internet, we say, this is the problem with the internet. This is the problem of, you know, the social media companies, etc., etc. And what they forget is that there are people like, you know, famously in Montreal, Mark Chapman in the 1970s. Sorry, I think Mark Chapman was the guy who shot John Lennon. I must, I think I got the, the wrong name there. But anyway, there are people, that, you know, you can go back through the records and see disaffected young men who blame women, who blame feminism for their problems. Um, and so it's a very, maybe the Western expression is to be anti-feminist and misogynistic about it, but there have always been men, often many men, who are um, frozen out of the mating market. Now, in China, several hundred years ago, that an entire dynasty was, you know, came unstuck because of um, an excess of young men, partly to do with um, with uh, preferences for sons, creating this excess of young men. Um, who were angry and were unable to to, to um, have relationships 
and they formed gangs and militias and basically rampaged through the countryside and in the cities and uh, brought the d dynasty unstuck. Um, we know that there's an element of this in the Sudanese civil war. There's an element of this in the Boko Haram uprising in um, northern Nigeria. There is an element of this in um, ISIS, you know, and we, we tend to think of those as religious issues. And of course, religion is part of the context there. But the fundamental biology is young men who think that they're never going to be attractive. What do they do? Well, evolutionary psychology says that, you know, they have a term, uh, Martin Daly and Margot Wilson called it the young male syndrome. Young men with very poor mating prospects will take inordinate chances, will take enormous risks and will discount their future in order to have a chance of climbing in status and respect and thereby becoming a, um, dominant over other men and hopefully thereby attractive to women. It's the basis of gang life and of militia life everywhere. Um, in the certainly up until the middle of the 20th century, a lot of men would perish in warfare, um, and so there was le there was less of the numbers game fueling this kind of thing because that angry impulse, that desire to make something of yourself, was often um, you know tapped into by armies, etc. Um, in in whichever society, but different societies have got different cultural ways of handling it. They've also got different cultural ways of dealing with, you know, whose problem is it if you're not getting laid? Um, and so to return to where you started your question, which is in Japan. Now, in Japan, the, um, the hikikomori are um, acutely so socially withdrawn people. So, uh, you know, it looks to me a lot like what we would maybe call depression. I'm not saying it is, and I'm no clinician, so I can't. Um, but this is something that's actually, you have male and female hikikomori in Japan, but there's this acute social withdrawal that's abetted by technology and that people have kind of withdrawn into their technological worlds and they don't go out and about um, in, and, and do interpersonal things with real humans in three-dimensional space. Now, that may be that, you know, Japan's certainly further down the track in embracing technologies, including the technologies of artificial intimacy than other countries are. But what's really interesting is the another group of, of young men called the Shoshoki Danshi, and I hope I haven't pronounced that wrong, but I almost certainly have, who um, are, I, I believe that the um, the translation of their name is men who are not attractive to women. There are, so, so these men are basically the Japanese equivalent of incels. And they, they some of their rhetoric is, is a little bit disturbing um, but their main thing that they do in terms of taking action is protest against Valentine's Day because they believe that this this um, sort of Hallmark card, chocolate-driven um, falseness surrounding Valentine's Day is everything that's wrong with romance. And if only we could get rid of that, then perhaps the, things would be a little bit fairer. Um, but, you know, um, sorry, and I think I think I've even got that wrong. Um, about the Shoshoku Danshi, but um, there in, in Japan also there are, um, you know, there are a lot of people who've just decided that relationships are too much, too much effort and that they'd rather video game. And especially because a lot of video games involve, you know, very highly gamified forms of romance. So people go, well, you know, if people disappear into their video games and they'll all become violent incels. Well, maybe they will, but, you know, maybe they won't. Maybe the context um, in which people are operating um, will sort of go more down the Japanese kind of route in terms of what's socially acceptable and whether or not withdrawal from, you know, um, maybe less overt enthusiasm about sex in all aspects of culture might turn out to be a good thing. Hard to say. I, I don't profess to know the answer to that. But I do think that um, that anything you do technologically, including doing nothing, which is not really an option, is going to have effects. Right. So I would like to ask you, at a certain point in the book, you say that you think lower, lowering the price of sex is good. Uh, in what ways does artificial intimacies, intimacy technologies might help with that? Okay, so what I mean when I say lowering the price of sex is um, 
that um, sex is ex we exchange sex. We don't we don't simply have sex with somebody without any expectation of anything else. So some people do, but it's not common. Okay, a much more common kind of um, situation is that there is there is some kind of give and take. Now that might be just mutual affection, but it might be it might be more than that. Um, and and it, it usually has been, you know, what do you bring to this relationship? What do I bring to this relationship? Okay, let's put those two things together and our entire futures and kind of mortgage those things together and we can have a long-term sexual relationship or same thing with short-term sexual relationships. Now, for various reasons that I would love to explain at length because I don't really want to get into huge amounts of trouble here, um, but nonetheless, you'll have to read the book because the, the argument is a little more nuanced that I'm going to put it. But for various reasons, there tend to be more men on the mating market looking for women than there are women looking for men. And part of the reason for that is that women spend a lot of their time um, not on the mating market because they are um, so certainly not on the market of looking for matings that could lead to conception because they're infertile, because historically women spend a lot of time um, subfertile because they because of starvation. Um, then um, uh, menopausal or pregnant and, and breastfeeding. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, many of those women would have been in relationships, etc. but um, those women, if you, if you sort of count them not in the numbers of people who are potentially open to the idea of having sex, men normal, almost always outnumber women in that regard. And so um, another way of looking at, at that is that the, that time that women spend and the energy that they spend involved in all of those really important parts of reproduction is itself a resource. And men have to compete for that resource because they don't necessarily bring all that much they don't have to bring that much. And so women are in a better position to negotiate. And so women can negotiate a better outcome. So um, when, when men outnumber women, then women are able to drive a harder bargain because there's more suitors competing for them, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so, the, so having lots and lots of men available um, tends to create what's called a high, what I call a high price of sex which is that women are able to, to negotiate a, a much better deal um, on the mating market. And the same is true in, to some extent in polygynous societies where one man can have lots of wives, then what happens? Then you've got an, an imbalance again because lots of women are in that man's kind of family or in the case of you know ancient rulers, harem. So um, you again have an, a surplus of men. And so again, you have a higher price of sex. And one other thing that can do that um, fairly reliably is high income inequality, where there is a large differences between wealthy and poor, you get a sort of a de facto kind of polygyny of, you know, the richest men having more, more wives, girlfriends, women, mistresses, etc. And as a result of that, um, the poorest men are kind of frozen out of the mating market. Now, all of those things cause um, the the young male syndrome, the incel syndrome, to get to be amplified, um, and therefore you see increases in within society violence, between society violence, whenever those kinds of things happen. So, you know, historically we've regulated that by saying, you know, you can only have one wife, um, you have to have monogamous marriage, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now, for various reasons, that also has its downsides, um, and and societies have tended to relax that and that's one of the things the incels are upset about they they want lifelong monogamous marriage because they know that that serves their interests there'll be more there'll be less competition for for wives under those circumstances um, and so you know it's it's simplistic to say that a high price of sex is is bad and a low price is good or the other way around but what I tend to think is that um, you know, if in doubt, we should we should hope for a society where the price of sex is relatively low, as long as women are able to access, you know, proper employment and welfare and all of the tools of the state, etc., um, in order to to have support, um, in order to make sure that that they don't basically have to trade their sexuality and their reproductive future for a chance at social mobility or at least social stasis. So, um, 
the the technologies of the sexual revolution, one of the ways in which they've worked to basically deliver more good than bad for societies and for most individuals within societies is effectively to lower the price of sex, effectively to make sex less of a transaction, which is the reason, if you remember when I started, I said I don't want to get into too much trouble, but you know, people do take issue with this notion of an exchange-based view of sex because they say that's an outdated notion. And it's like, yes, we would like it to be outdated, but it actually isn't if you, you know, encounter real people in the real world, not just in academia. Um, and um, so, so we've got far enough in terms of reducing the price of sex in a lot of places in Western societies, educated parts of Western societies, that um, the price of sex is kind of relatively low and we're reaping those benefits. And I guess what I want to say about artificial intimacy is to the extent to which those technologies can perpetuate that by being relatively accessible to people, um, they, those technologies are likely to do good. Um, regulate the hell out of them, make them something that, you know, are only accessible to very rich people and you may end up with some very perverse outcomes. Um, you might end up with, with sex becoming more of a status symbol than it already is, um, and that would be a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I think this is a good point to end on also because we've already sort of explored some of the pluses and minuses of these kinds of sex technologies and went through some of the major topics of the book. And of course, I don't want to spoil it completely in yeah. the interview. So uh, again, the book is Artificial Intimacy, Virtual Friends, Digital Lovers and Algorithmic Matchmakers. I will be leaving a link to it in the description box of the interview. Uh, Dr. Brooks, would you like to mention any places on the internet where people can find your work? Sure. Um, I think most of my writing is available at, or at least accessible at robbrooks.net, uh, which is my website. And, um, you know, on social media, I tweet very actively at brooks underscore rob. Uh, so those are, are, are good places to see what's coming out. Some of these ideas that we've talked about, I'll be developing in essays over the coming weeks. Um, but I'd really love to hear from people what they think of the arguments. Um, and um, yeah, and just to see how, how the interview goes. I'm really, really delighted to be on the dissenter. Okay, thank you so much. And thank you for taking the time to come on the show. Much appreciated, Ricardo. Keep up the great work. Hi, guys. Thank you for watching the interview until the end. If you like what I'm doing, please consider supporting the show. It's thanks to people like you that it keeps running. I will leave links in the description box to Patreon and PayPal. Any amount, even just $1 per month, would already be a great help. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share the interview, leave a like, and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Peruga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Ernst Frederick Sunder, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Glinkby, Matthew Whitting, Bernardo Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Henry Kalenia, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Voss, Bo Weingard, Rebecca Newberger Goldstein, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windegger, Rui Inácio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Colombo, Jorge Pinha, Phil Cavanagh, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Robert, Roberto Inguanzo, Michael Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Hugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Fergal Cusson, Evan Bodrenk, Wal Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrand, Oslin Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., João Weira, Tom Hummel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Desaraújo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dermiti Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roff, Yannick Punter, Adana Rusmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostazewski, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Hellman, João Linares, Lida Cosmidi, Sam Afzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paulo Tolentino, João Barbosa, Jules Price, Edward Hall, 
Edin Bronner, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortés, Ursula Litzke, Mai Produces, Isar Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Taffini, Akian Gilligan, Luis Caetano, Tom Vanegdam, Curtis Dixon, John Linares, Benedict Miller, Vega Guidi, Sardis France, and Thomas Trumbull, and my executive producers, Michel Rugieski, Rosie, James Pratt, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Codriano, and Bogdan Knivets. Thank you for all.